1: Hello everybody, welcome to Audio Judo. I am Matthew. I'm Kyle. Thanks for joining us today. Indeed. Kyle, how you doing?
0: I'm doing pretty good, how are you?
1: Yeah, you doing well.
0: Yeah, I'm doing well.
1: That's good, it's good to hear.
0: Superman does good, I do well. Wow,
1: wow, very nice.
0: Thanks, 30 Rock. <laughs>
1: uh, we got some old business?
0: I got, I no, do. oh good, let's talk about I it do. Uh What earlier, have you got?
1: Earlier this week we uh, were lucky enough to talk to, uh, one of my musical idols fish the ex-lead singer of a progressive rock band from that was that's still around now but was very popular in the 80s um very it continues to have popularity in europe um not so much in the states uh the band's name was marillion fish is about to release his final studio album later this year and he was gracious enough to join us from his home in Scotland and chat for about 45 minutes or so.
0: Yeah, it was great.
1: Um, since our timeline might be out of whack currently, uh, that episode most likely aired well before this one did. So if you are joining us for the first time to listen to this episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one as well. Um, gave us some great info about the current state of the music industry regarding re-coronavirus. Yeah. Um, and some other super stuff as well, as well as cooking lovely lamb dinner for his mother while he was on the phone with us. So that's, yeah,
0: good. it was a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun to talk to.
1: Yeah. Once you uh, can understand what he's saying, I'm just kidding. That's <laughs> I
0: surprisingly had no problem with that. Just a couple of words when here you, and there. When you were like, he had a Scottish, he, before we had talked to him, Matthew was like, oh, he has a Scottish brogue in his voice. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm really going to have to pay attention. No, I picked it right up. I don't know. Well, good. I mean, it wasn't, it well, was you're fancier than me, I guess. Well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. There was only one time where I was kind of like, what was that word? But yeah, you both, that, I think we both, both looked at didn't. each other like, what the heck was that word? But we got it. Of the time, it was great.
1: We got it through context, I believe. Yeah. Also uh, again, since I don't know exactly when this will be airing, uh, I'm not entirely sure where we will be in the coronavirus saga of 2020. Either way, the crisis has affected everyone, including independent artists trying to carve out a living mm-hmm. back in October, We interviewed a band out of Kentucky named the Cold Stairs. They're a great band, really wonderful guys. uh, And this crisis hit them quite hard, Uh, canceled all their gigs that they had lined up for uh, the summer, as well as putting a stop to some of their teaching gigs for the time being, since most of those are done in person. They put together a special t shirt that they are selling for 25 bucks to help supplement their lost income. Heather and I bought a couple. Um, And if you'd like to buy one or just have a look at them, uh, I encourage you to go to their merchandise site. It's thecoldstairs.square.site. Anything you can do to help out would be appreciated. That includes paying for some downloads to listen to their music or whatever. But your independent artist out there is most likely struggling big time. So if you want to listen to them or you have one in particular that you enjoy listening to, throw them a couple downloads, do whatever you can to help them out. Because this is a, uh, it's a very difficult time for everybody.
0: Yes, so, it is.
1: That's all I have for old business. So uh, this week's choice is the 1994 album Throwing Copper by the group Live. Just so we're clear, this was one of my favorite bands from that period. And this record is probably in my top 15. Those lists are always really difficult, kind of weird to make. I'm not saying that this is one of the top 15 records ever made or that I even think this is one of the best top 15 records that I could listen to. It's just one of those records that I go back to every few months and listen to. It used to have a permanent place in my multi CD changer. <laughs> and it's one of those records that shows up in my top plays when Spotify gives your, your list at the end of the year. So
0: was it a trunk mounted multiplay CD player? I guess it was. Oh, That's nice.
1: It's very, uh, nice. And I had a removable one as well. That was in a different car, but the, that was, uh, it's fancy with the little handle.
0: Wow. Right. Mr. Uh, Mr. Rich Roller over right? here.
1: Well, it's all it's all for the music, you know? <laughs> so live, the band uh consists of four guys, Chad Gracie on drums, Chad Taylor on guitar. It's two Chads, uh, Patrick Dahlheimer on bass, and Ed Kowalczyk on vocals and guitar. They have been together since the mid-80s when they were all in their middle teens. Typical suburbanite garage band. Uh, They were founded in York, Pennsylvania. They were originally called Public Affection, but renamed themselves Live in the 1980s, right before they got a record deal. They regularly played CBGBs in New York. Those concerts helped secure their first record deal in 1991. 1991, New Year's Eve of 1991 to be exact, they released their first album, Mental Jewelry, and that was the first I had ever heard of them. Hmm. Or... Saw them, to be more precise. I saw them and heard them for the first time on MTV's 120 Minutes. Ah! Uh, It was for a song called Operation Spirit, The Tyranny of Tradition. And it was very direct for me when I first saw it. It caught me off guard. It was very jarring. So I was at that time, 19-year-old kid, about three months away from meeting my future wife, smoking a lot of weed, drinking a lot of beer, (laughs) <laughs> Very angry and confused about my life and prospects. Um, I had been raised Catholic, went to Catholic school and was jaded, mad about a lot of things I had been uh, raised to believe were true. Um, my parents were devout Catholics. My dad was a uh, permanent deacon in the Catholic church, which in Catholicism is as close as you can get to being a priest without actually becoming one more than anything, because he had been married first. Mm. My mom also had a certificate in theology from the seminary, which is as close as you can get to being a nun, without actually being one. More than anything, because she had been married first. It's <laughs> a pattern here. So they taught classes on sexuality and marriage. So yeah, it was weird. Oh boy, yeah, it's very weird.
0: However, but I bet that was fun. That's weird. A teenager wasn't it was
1: very it? strange, but they were not st- like strict like you would expect. Yeah, I had to go to church every Sunday. Uh, but I still watched R-rated movies. My parents drank. They knew I did too. So it was fine, but I was angry because it all seemed like a big scam to me. Um, And I realize that we're kind of far afield from music, but it's kind of relevant. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I was really bought into this charade. I was an altar boy, sang in the choir, played drums in a host of different events at the church, went to Catholic school, and I believed what I was being taught because that was what I was raised to believe. But then I got into high school and I started forming the person I was going to become and began to think for myself. I started to look look at things differently, right? I went to a pretty liberal Catholic high school and in our religion classes, which were daily, especially towards senior year, we were encouraged at some point to explore different religions. I'm sure it was under the guise of comparison shopping you know, but it opened a lot of eyes because other religions or spiritual practices made a lot more sense than the pomp and tradition of Catholicism, especially like during Easter or something. So here comes this song called Operation Spirit with this little bit right here. So yeah, that kind of spoke to me pretty hardcore. And I was kind of hooked into the music because I had never heard anyone be quite that direct with doubt musically. Yeah. I played the shit out of that record for about two years. (laughs) Right. I met my future bride. We got engaged. My life settled down. I include multiple songs from that record on mixtapes for Heather. Things were good. Then word started to come out that Live was getting to release their sophomore record and i was nervous that it would carry the typical sophomore jinx and then it exploded on the world big time so throwing copper was released on april 26 1994 already to great acclaim because the song selling drama which we will talk about shortly uh, had risen to the top of the modern or the billboard modern rock track chart this was nearing the end of the age of nirvana it's firmly planted in the age of pearl jam
0: Oh, very much.
1: And this band came along and kind of upset everything with a totally different lyrical style. Here, I thought that this was a band of angsty teenagers from Pennsylvania. They were just going to grow up a little, leave that rage behind them, but they came out angrier than before, ready to blow up all religious sentiments, and they came out roaring. For once, Rolling Stone gets it right, or so I think. (laughs) They wrote... An instrumental attack as supercharged as Sound Gardens, freely suggestive lyrics and vocal phrasing that recall Michael Stipe, whisper to a scream dynamics a la Nirvana. This Pennsylvania quartet seems ready made for alternative stardom. It's not that they're calculating imitators, rather, live capture the anger and ache of the moment in riveting songs driven home by expert players. Edward Kowalczyk is a powerhouse singer. Guitarist Chad Taylor, bassist Patrick Dahlheimer, and drummer Chad Gracie drop musical smart bombs with unerring precision. Live strive for an epic sound. Almost always they cinch it. Wow. Right?
0: That's uh that's a pretty good uh, review there.
1: Right. So when I heard it, I can't tell you how that review, I can't tell you how happy that made me feel. For once, I don't I didn't feel wrong. Or does it mean I am most definitely wrong because they like what I like. <laughs> so eh. Yeah, whatever. It doesn't matter. So this record became everything to me musically for a long time. So my favorite group, Rush, had released a new album about six months before. I'd recently seen them from the very front of the stage, but I was still hooked into live. I was even on, this for all you uh, older people, I was even on BBS chat rooms Ooh. talking them up, right? I remember vividly having a conversation with someone who about who would step up and, quote, replace Rush. When their time was up and I said that I believe that they were already here and it was live. Now hindsight tells us that was a bit premature on my part. (laughs) A because live never panned out that way. It kind of got bogged down in their own ideologies and got super preachy instead of super angry and B rush kept playing until 2015. So who takes their place? The answer is no one ever takes their place. (laughs) So this record Recorded at the Pachyderm Studio in a remote wooded area just outside Minneapolis. And as usual, I think the location of recording has a lot to do with the sound of the record. Agreed. I think nowadays you can record anywhere uh, in your house, pretty much anywhere, and it makes the music sterile. It's like, hey, I'm going to be late for work. Let me just lay down this track real quick, open up Pro Tools (laughs) or whatever, and then bam. And there used to be so much planning, sometimes isolation, remote locales. Necessity of living in the same place as your bandmates, and sometimes that fueled anger, or love, or drugs, or all three, if you're Fleetwood Mac.
0: You forgot forgot cheating.
1: Oh, that too. But all those different things which are absent in a quick session before work helped elicit different sounds, different things, which is part of the reason why I think music mostly sucks right now.
0: (laughs) That is a good possibility, that it's just become too easy to record it's become too distant you've become too separated from the actual act of recording and it it means that you know like you said people can do it quickly people can do it in their spare time which on the one hand great there's tons more music but there's nothing behind it there's nothing to 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 sort of drive it and push it forward
1: yeah what's the catalyst what's the you know if i'm recording at a farmhouse in wales Mm mm-hmm Far off the beaten path, you know, without the comforts of typical home life and stuff. I think it's going to, it's going to, you're going to get a different feel, a different response. You're going to have more time in isolate, more time in seclusion. Maybe you're taking more walks. Maybe you're down by a lake. And I think that's going to influence the sound of the record as opposed to, well, I'm recording this in my spare bathroom using half garage band and stuff. It's just the, the sterility, the, the, there's nothing dynamic pushing it forward.
0: Yeah. I would agree with that.
1: Honestly, does anyone make records like that anymore?
0: I think that the trick is that you have to become a big musician first in order to have the resources to do that now, because that is the one key factor here is the resources. You have to be able to say, okay, I can not have a day job. I cannot have side gigs. I can take a month or two months or six months or however long and move out into the wilderness and record this album while I also take care, you know, I mean, a lot of people have families and, right. you know, responsibilities, still be able to put those aside for six months or however long and say, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be out in the wilderness for six months, honey, I'll take care, <laughs> take good care of the kids. I'll see you later. Right. Go out into the woods, record for six months and then come back. I don't think those kind of resources exist in the music industry anymore. Hmm. I think that uh, a lot of that has dried up in favor of how quickly can we record this, how low budget can we record this, how, you know, yeah, let's use your home studio. You know, you can lay down your own guitar tracks at home and then just send them into the engineer and they'll tweak them a little bit and then, uh, you know, we'll lay it all down.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, it suffers because of that.
0: Yes, I would agree.
1: Also on this record, it was produced by Jerry Harrison. He used to be, he was the former bass player for the Talking Heads. Mm -hmm. And I think that also has something to do with it because isolated in a studio with a producer who's another voice to the band that can speak to, whoa, that is not good. Or that's great, keep building on that as opposed to I'm recording in my bedroom. Nobody is the extra ear that can say as an outside observer, heard what you've done yeah and you should be ashamed of yourself or (laughs) like wow that's that's incredible that's a great hook let's build off that hook and i think that's also lacking the oversight of having another party involved with it there's a reason why most of the great records of our time are not self-produced records yeah they have another ear to to say hmm hmm Not that, but this.
0: Maybe change this thing.
1: Just a little bit.
0: You know, tweak it.
1: So this band purported to be the 90s version of U2. Right, Good musicianship with overtly religious lyrics, albeit U2 was Catholic based. And this was rooted more in Eastern religions like Hindi and Buddhism. But as a a kid of 21 years old, this is exactly uh, what I was looking for at the time. Do you have any more notes? Before we go into a track by track.
0: I think we got to talk a little bit about the cover art. Okay. It's, uh it's actually a painting by a Scottish artist named Peter Housen. Uh, it's titled Sisters of Mercy. Mm-hmm. Was uh, recently sold. Well, recently in 2005. Uh, sold at Christie's in New York City for $186,000. So it's it's an actual piece of art. It's not like something created just for this. Right. It was uh, originally created in 1989. But uh, it supposedly depicts a bunch of prostitutes urging a man holding a Bible to his chest to kill himself by jumping off a cliff, which is pretty damn symbolic of what's going on in this album.
1: I would say so. Yes.
0: But, uh, I, I like it. It's a very weird painting. You know, if you've never seen it, uh, obviously you can, you know, view small versions of it on iTunes or wherever else as the cover of this. Yeah. Um, but go take a look at the original. It's a little bit larger. There's a little bit that isn't cropped out because it was obviously cropped to fit on, you know, a CD cover or an album cover. Yeah. Uh, but it's a it's a beautiful painting
1: yeah it is bigger it's significantly bigger than the record
0: a lot of Peterhausen's other stuff just looking at it when I was doing research for this is is very similar similar themes similar art style but it's uh, it's very interesting it's a very unique art style that I haven't seen around a lot
1: and it's very different from anything of theirs that, that came before or would come after yeah uh, very different it's a it's a unique cover I like it anything else?
0: No, that's it. That's all I had. That's it? Yeah, you've covered pretty much everything else. One note? Uh, it went eight times platinum. That's it the did. only other thing that we haven't talked about. But
1: That is true. So let's
0: uh, let's start her up.
1: First song is The Dam at Otter Creek.
0: The Dam at Otter Creek.
1: The song starts the record so much more ominously than I would have expected coming out of the last one. Heavily reverb, vocals, real muddy, kind of flange guitars, kind of set the tone for the beginning of the song. And then it builds to this crescendo, but the crescendo doesn't descend; it yeah. just plows through.
0: It does. It just kind of—it's a
1: constant upward song. Absolute total chaos at the end, <laughs> you know, like huge, out of control '90s alternative super stew of sounds and banging and screaming, and then it just falls out.
0: Yeah, gone.
1: And it—and like I'm like, "Woo, that's just the beginning of the record. That's a." That's quite the start. Yeah. And the lyrics are typical Ed, very worldly with a story kind of woven into it. So he's talking about a guy who dies in a river behind a dam that kids used to build, which would be the literal version of these lyrics. Mm -hmm. But I hear a lot of regret and versions of rebirth in here, knowing that Ed is a student of uh, Jiddu Krishnamurti, the Indian Swami, Hmm. uh, and his philosophies of reincarnation. That would make sense. And would be a continuation of the previous record as his ideologies that were all over Mental Jewelry, the first record. Hmm. Very strange. But there's also a picture on the back cover of this album, which you, you wouldn't get digitally. You wouldn't know. But there's a picture on the back cover of the album with the words Otter Creek Picnic Area and all words associated with it. No liquor, no swimming, blah, 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 blah. Quick Google search of that place puts it just outside the city limits of York, Pennsylvania, where the band is from. Ooh. So this is a real place and I'm sure somewhat based on either local legend or real life experience. Huh? Yeah.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. I never would have caught that because you don't have the physical album. You don't have the the physical
1: record. Exactly. I know. See again, it always comes back to the artwork. There's more to it than a thumbnail and Spotify.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm going to keep harping that until, until somebody goes, you know, I think Matthew's right. I think that's a real thing. We should get him on a talk show or something. No, it's not happening.
0: He's so smart and handsome. Okay, nobody's ever said any of those things. Oh, okay, things. I'm
1: sorry. Was I uh sorry, it was uh let just spitball in there.
0: <laughs> I apologize.
1: So, selling the drama is the next song. And this is the song that began the climb to the top. Yes, for them. So, like I had mentioned earlier, the song was released about 2 months before the record. And this was the first single uh began a steady climb to the top of the modern rock charts where it peaked at number one. Number. It also charted at number 43 on the Billboard Top 100, so it was a significant single, obviously, and helped set the course for the record. After the chaos of the last song, it begins gently with these bent chords, Ed's pleasant voice, as opposed to the very screamy ending of uh, Otter Creek.
0: Yeah, it's a very weird juxtaposition between that really loud, frantic ending, and then all of a sudden, you're just here.
1: Yeah, it's they dynamically they do some some weird stuff, uh, and mu- musically this song is very nice. You know, it's a good listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lyrics, however, holy shit, <laughs> uh, they could not have hit the nail any more on the head for me at that age. I was selling the drama, this song is about church from top to bottom. About the preacher and the congregant, the preacher explaining the wages of sin, about the fear of hell and the love of God, and how these two things are inextricably linked together. And Ed is sitting in the chair. one point, he says, Christ on the cross, me on the chair, and he's earning the ransom. And we're doing nothing but sitting down here listening like sheep. And he says, Yeah, yeah, I know. We've been there. It sounds like this. So yeah, so, you know, I get it. We we won't be raped or fleeced by this nonsense, and we won't carry those scars like I obviously still do, clearly. Oh yeah. And I'm still kind of surprised at how much after this many years how much this song uh, continues to resonate with me. There's a really strong connection. And I'm sure we've talked about this before, but the timing of when you hear songs is as important, if not more than the overall quality of the oh, songs yeah. in the first place. Realistically, if I gave this song a listen for the first time ever, right now, I'd probably be like, eh, you know, okay. But in
0: 1994... Yeah,
1: when I heard it, and what frame of mind I was in, it's become very anthemic. Is that a word?
0: It should be, if it's not.
1: Anthemic. anthem me, Anthem-like. It became an anthem for me.
0: There you go. (laughs) Thanks, English. It's a great song. This it's, podcast brought to you by the English language. Right? English. Hey, we're a bastard. English.
1: <laughs> but I like that. I mean, I've always liked that the musicality of the song, but it was the lyrics that were much more uh relevant to me. Yeah, I think.
0: I was just gonna say, even the the title of this, Selling the Drama. Well, that's the yeah, that's I mean, the whole thing. It's it's it, that's literally what church is doing a lot of time is they they pick the most dramatic things they possibly can and sell it to you as it's this big picture thing. You know, you have to it's so dramatic and every oh, if you don't do this, these things will happen and they, no, have, they have to they have to sell the drama.
1: right? Please put in 10 percent of your earnings into this basket yeah. that comes by. So we continue to dramatize. <laughs> I Alone is the next song. Uh, this was the follow-up single to Selling the Drama, mm-hmm. and the second part of what I believe to be one of the top three four-song runs of the 90s. Ooh. So you got the first four tracks of Nevermind, which rivaled just about any four-song run ever. Agreed. And then uh, you have on 10, Even Throw, even Flow Through Black, and you can even include Jeremy on top five on there, um, on the 10 album, and then t- tracks two to five on this record. Just a great run. So this is this song is very much in the style that they have been creating for a while. It's a quietly strummed guitar at the beginning, gentle vocals, and then the whole thing just builds and explodes. Now that's just kind of how their songs kind of meander a little bit. And he's very much wearing his snarl, because you could tell yes. when he's snarling, he's wearing it when he sings his song. When this album was first released, Heather and I were engaged, and we had an apartment about 35 minutes away from the restaurant that we owned at the time. And we used to absolutely love Yell singing this song on the way home after being there for 15 hours. So it was a nice release, just like,
0: just, just let out. out,
1: windows down, you know. Just like pissed off at the world. Like, this is good. This is, let's listen to this.
0: People, this- people trying to order to, Atlanta pizza with pepperonis, not too many pepperonis. If you've been putting too many pepperonis, you on get there, as many pepperonis have as I put no, on. No, I you really There's too many pepperonis. Can I get another pizza made?
1: Why don't you just pick the pepperonis off yourself?
0: No, it's got to have them. The flavor <laughs> bakes into the crust <laughs> and the cheese so that it, uh,
1: okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'll remake it. You son.
0: You're just <laughs> making the pizza. Fuck, fuck, fuck.
1: I'm going <laughs> to listen to
0: I Alone on the way home, oh, God damn it. And that's what we did.
1: That's so good. This song, <laughs> this song would reach number <laughs> number six on Billboard's Modern Rock Charts. At the time, that was listed as the alternative rock chart. Oh. Now it's called the Modern Rock Chart because we've grown up. <laughs> For me, uh, this song is all over the map, lyrically, right? You got elements of Satan and God kind of doing a back and forth, mm-hmm. the whole... I alone love you. I alone tempt you. Think this is both sides of that argument doing their best persuasive arguments. But I also get this feeling of abandonment to figure these things out for yourself. So he's lines like, uh, alone in the church, by and by, to cradle, cradle the baby in space and leave you there by yourself, chained to fate. To me, I'm wondering, I don't know if he was raised Catholic. I feel like he was. So I feel like that's a baptism. A couple of parents holding a baby before baptism. As it happens in Catholic Church, babies are baptized, not adults usually. And they are predetermined that this was the faith the baby would know most of its life. So we've chained you to that faith as a child, believing it to you as an adult to figure out what it all means. Good luck with that. So earlier in the song, he uses the line, chained to fate, saying the greatest of teachers won't hesitate to leave you. Again, saying you got to do this work alone. You might have great swamis, great priests, great rabbis, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to figure this out for yourself, which again, 21 years old, this horribly weird break with the Catholic church that I had been so involved in for all these years. This song is like right at the heart of what I was feeling at the time. Like, again, you guys couldn't help me. You kind of shat on me and now you've abandoned me and I got to figure (laughs) this out for myself. Thanks. A lot. I could have been doing other things with my Sundays for the last 20 years, but no. So that's a, it's a it's, wonderfully angry
0: song. It is weird too, that like a lot of people seem to think this is a love song. Well, where, Yeah. And what I've never gotten that. And even Ed, he said, people think I Alone is a love song, but it really wasn't. The lyrics were more abstract, uh, encompassing a much larger message. And it's to me, there's sort of a couple of elements that are the same as like a love song, but if you actually listen to the lyrics, there's no way this is a love song. Agreed. I've never I don't know.
1: I don't know where you get like I don't (laughs) I don't know if it's a if there's a 13-year-old person writing a review again, (laughs) like it's
0: about love.
1: I alone I I
0: fully understand what being in love is like (laughs) because I've had two dates in my life.
1: (laughs) Also, uh, VH1, the greatest Rancor of our time, Ooh. sarcasm added. Named this number sixty-two on the top one hundred songs of the nineties. Ooh, I didn't look at the rest of the list, but but VH1. I believe I saw this on Beavis and Butthead one time too. Yeah, I think
0: is this a, the the music video for this is the one that's in the woods, right?
1: I don't know if that's yes.
0: Well, I, I wonder because I feel yeah. like I feel like there was a pop-up video of this. Too. I
1: believe there was a pop-up video. For all you youngsters out there, pop-up Ooh. video is when they took music videos, again, kind of an abstract concept for you guys, and they and they popped up little factoids about the song or the video or the artist during the song. It was great. And it would make a sound when it happened. <laughs> that was... Uh, Randy's favorite noise. Uh, he enjoys it. Uh, next song is Iris. Now, every album needs a song about a blowjob. Am I right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true yes. am I every right album. am I right I mean think about Octopus's Garden uh, you know every uh, every album every album should have
1: a song about a blowjob so yes indeed is my firm belief that this song is about that for the longest time I thought it was a song about domestic violence until I really started listening to the picture he was kind of painting and it seems kind of evident that now and it sounds uh, like this
0: Right hand looked on your head. And the of my knuckles. The beauty of this vision alone, just like yesterday's sunset. It's been by the sentimental. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that uh, I would uh I had never thought about it that way until you mentioned it, but then I uh, I would agree with you. Yeah, however, bad beat for a blowjob. That's uh and then long pause and then and then long pause. Nobody wants that. No, no don't stop. What do you do Oh,
1: ever, moments like this that I I really want to invest in some cameras so we could record this for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody's missing that the hand motion yeah, the everybody. Da, da,
0: da, da, da. I don't know how to describe this in, uh, yeah I can describe this picture grabbing somebody by the back of their head the knuckles uh grabbing yeah. somebody's hair by the back of their head and then uh, well and he
1: says in there like this act has been perverted by this the sentimental and mistaken for love. Yeah. Like uh okay. So it's a very it's very much a song about power and or fending off power. I think he's used to being in this particular arrangement. <laughs> and he has walls up, his armies, he says in the, in the song, armies ready to defend. So it's just a physical act. He doesn't want to get too involved or have any feelings for her or him, whoever happens to be. And he says, there's a line in there called the Felix of your truth will always break it. I feel like that Felix is kind of shorthand for Felicity. Or happiness or bliss or whatever.
0: That is amazing. That is exactly the line that I wrote down that I was like, we got to talk about this because it's such a weird, it's an unusual phrasing. The oh. Felix of your truth will always break it.
1: It's very strange.
0: It's very strange. And like the first time I heard this song that I was actually paying attention, I was like, what the hell did he just say? The Felix of your truth will break it. And <laughs> that's I was it. like, yeah, that's it. And I had to look it up. And the first lyric site I looked at, I was like, that's wrong. That has to be wrong. The Felix of your truth yeah. will always break it. I yeah. was like, that's got to be like some computer, like algorithm <laughs> bullshit trying to analyze it. I was like, no, let's look again. It's that on everything, and I'm assuming it's probably that in the the liner notes as well. It is. So that's uh, that's interesting. So it's so that
1: line, Felix of your of uh, yeah, Felix of your truth will always break it. Followed by the line, the iris of your eyes will always shake it. So meaning in your eyes, you. Being the giver, you will always frame this act to mean one thing or the other, no matter what I, the receiver, feel about it. Like there's nothing I can do to change what you are perceiving this act to mean. So whatever he says, this is nothing. The iris of your eyes is will shake it, so your viewpoint will you you will pervert it or make it however you want it to come out. Right?
0: Oh, see, I thought that was a warning not to get cum in your eyes. Well, but. (laughs) <laughs> well,
1: it could be that too. Okay. I don't know. I could be wrong. So it's a very it's very much a song about uh, internal conflict. You know, he's falling for this person and doesn't want to just use her, but the armies he's created will always bait you on. Like, I don't want to hurt you, but you might as well finish what you are up to down
0: there. <laughs> Essentially.
1: <laughs>
0: wow, this song uh took on a lot more meaning than I expected. Yeah. I like it. I mean, it's a good
1: song. Music-wise, it's very similar to where we've been. You know, slower start, ramps up. Bass is wonderful on this song, especially at the end. It's not my favorite song on the record, but I love it nonetheless. I, because of what he's able to pack into, two and a half minute song lyrically. And until like a few years ago, I, I was firmly convinced he's you know, he always talking about the presence of my knuckles and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I'm like, oh, he's, you know, it's a song about domestic violence. I'm like, wait a second, wait a
0: second, wait a second.
1: No, it's not. It isn't. It's a good song. I like it. And it leads into, uh,
0: Latin. Learning creative.
1: <laughs> this is a song that without a doubt, everyone who is listening to this podcast has heard at one point in their lives. Oh yeah.
0: They still play this on like alt nation and a lot of, uh, radio stations, terrestrial radio stations still play this pretty frequently. Yeah.
1: Released in September of 1994, just two weeks after my wedding. I am that old. <laughs> Uh, It was for a long period of time inescapable. Reached number 12 on the Billboard Top 100, but it hit number one on the album Rock Chart, stayed there for 10 weeks. Hit number one on the Modern Rock Chart, stayed there for nine weeks. It is without a doubt, Live's biggest hit. And I would say it is the first and only time I have heard the word placenta (laughs) used in a rock song, or any (laughs) style song for that matter. soon. song. Such an intense song.
0: I had no idea. It was actually uh, It's dedicated to a woman named Barbara Lewis, who uh, was a, a high school... I don't know if you could say friend or... Classmate. Classmate, that's a good term.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: who died by uh, being killed by a drunk driver in 1993. Mm-hmm. Which is depressing, but uh, it makes sense. And it's,
1: it's interesting, because I've read different stories of this. I read a story from her brother-in-law. Barbara Lewis's brother-in-law mm-hmm. and she wrote uh, the songs lyrics are mostly an analogy. Barb donated several organs, including her heart. She was close to Ed and the guys and died in a car collision. These lyrics are constantly misunderstood. Yes. Ed is speaking to the circle of life, but specifically to how Barb's life gave new life to many the angel, the baby down the hall, the pale blue eyes, the pain. The Lyrics are wholly Ed's interpretation of his experience and perception of Barb's impact. Our family has become close with the most genuine and caring man who is still alive, who has Bob's Barb's heart beating in his chest. Lightning crashes, literally lives on. That seems to fly in the face, though, of what Ed has said about it. He dedicated it to her, but didn't write it about her, but more hmm. to her and her family. He wanted to give the family solace amid the sorrow and express those feelings in her about one life ending and another life beginning but he says he didn't write it specifically about her or her experiences. So you get it kind of both angles there about what it's actually about. To me, I think regardless of what it's about, it helps explain a lot about what seems like death in the song is more about life than anything else. Yeah. You know, it's all it's been misconstrued for years that people in the video were like the, the, the lady that gave birth died in childbirth. Yeah. Which is not which actually is not the true. case. At all. It's more just a circular thing where the old lady is passing away, but there's a new baby being born type of thing. It's a it's an amazing song. It's just it still resonates. I mean, there's a good reason why it still gets played on the radio.
0: And this is another one that was written really quickly, right? He wrote it in like a weekend, correct? Yeah. Oh yeah. We keep finding that. And that's something that it never I'd never put any real conscious thought into it. So many hit songs and so many of like the you know, the the most memorable songs on albums have ended up being quick songs, you know, like not the ones that they spent weeks on, not the ones that they tweaked and everything, the ones that they were like, oh, well, I was in the studio and I I took 10 minutes and sat down to, you know, get some thoughts out on paper. And then it became this huge hit song. That is crazy to me. A lot of times people will say, you know, if you're having a problem or you can't think your way through something, take a nap, you know, sure. take a shower, don't think about it for a few days and let your subconscious work on it. And I always wonder if these kind of songs are the things that people are inspired weeks or months beforehand and their subconscious works on it that whole time. And then they just have to stop and be like, you know what? Let me stop for 10 minutes and see if I can, you know, write down some lyrics for a song or write down the the melody for a song or whatever. And when they do it, it just pours out of their subconscious. It's just like it's kind of paper.
1: bubbling around. Exactly. Like it's, Daniel Victor told us that, like, yes. if you want to listen to it, uh, Daniel Victor was uh, on our interview with Never Ending White Lights and Daniel Victor is back in November if you want to listen to it. Yes. But he explained how th- those songs are fully formed when he gets to the guitar, yet he doesn't know where they come from. Like he's pulling it yeah. out of some sort of universal space where it's just pouring out of him in the guitar and he can hear all the other parts of the song in his head and you're like, "Well, where is that coming from?" And uh, and I think you're right to some degree that your your brain is probably working under the surface. Like he said, he Ed wrote this like in his bedroom as he was getting ready to move out yeah. of his house and you're just strumming along and like I can't imagine having that. I'm sure it, I'm sure it happens to all of us in different ways with different things. Like I every time I sit down to write what I'm going to talk about, I have I spend 15 minutes kind of sitting there, Mm -hmm. like wondering, well, how am I going to do this? I can't think of anything to write. And then I start writing. And then next thing you know, I wrote seven pages because it just pours out of you. And you're like, well, where was that coming from? And where was that? Was there some sort of like cork that I needed to pop it out and go, oh, well, there's all the ideas. They've been uh, buried all this time. (laughs) Like, yeah, they, they came pouring out of me. But I think, I think there's some, some truth to that, especially, you know, writing a song like this, I'm I'm sure, melody wise, it, it probably just poured out of him. Yeah, and then not everything else, you know, you get dressed up in the studio. But again, I there's there's something about what would this song had sounded like if it was just Ed Kowalczyk recording this on Pro Tools in his bedroom, yeah, and just knocked it out, as opposed to he wrote the melody, then he took this idea to the studio, he had all of his bandmates there and a producer who gave their ideas and poured their input into it and made it what it become. Would would it be the same? Would it be as impactful? Would it be as special as it is now? And I think, again, we're, we're back to that. I wish people made records the old fashioned way, but
0: it's (laughs) old.
1: Uh, So
0: top top is the next album or the next track.
1: This is a very underrated song in my opinion.
0: It's very short Mm -hmm. for this album, especially everything else is almost for it. The next closest songs are almost four minutes, and this is not even three. No. Nope. So it's it's unusually short for this album.
1: It kind of gets washed out and all the lightning crashes hubbub before it, you know. Starts off with this Middle Eastern vocal part, and the song is an absolute jam. So again, uh, Patrick Dahlheimer is an extremely underrated bass player, in my opinion. In fact, that was one of the things that drew me to them from the first record was his playing from Operation Spirit. The slap, pop bass is just so good. and It's definitely the star of this song. But lyrically, so it could be a little oblique on the surface, seems to be about a young man who spends a lot of time reading, and he's voicing the fact that all the things he gravitated to because they seemed interesting at the time, like Doors of Perception or Freud or Mein Kampf or things like that, are not helping him at all. And he finally gets to the point, like most of us do at some point, that the answers he is seeking are within him, not in these books. And it's a great message again for a late teen, early twenties kid to hear, stop listening to all the other shit and listen to what's happening inside. It's a very relevant lyric to be able to, to sit and hear that is just, you're like, "Mm, I need to be told, stop listening to all this garbage. I know it's interesting, but, but the, your answers are going to come from in here. And that's a, it's a good song.
0: I liked it. Yeah. It's uh, it's not one that I was familiar with before doing this, but, uh, I think underrated. I think when you said it's underrated is definitely the right word for it because it's in a weird spot on the album.
1: Oh yeah, it's yeah, it's buried. Yeah. Did you what? What was your familiarity level with this record going in? I guess I didn't ask that at the top.
0: Uh, that's okay. Uh, I was familiar with the hits like Lightning Crashes and uh, Selling the Drama, mm-hmm. but I don't think I'd ever listen to this album from beginning to end. Really? Yeah. Live was familiar to me in the same way that you know a lot of bands from that grunge era are familiar, but not bands that I would actively like seek out and normally listen to. Well, that would but,
1: probably have something to do with the age gap. Then
0: I'm sure that's part of it. I yeah. mean, I was 10 years old when this album exactly. came out, so I was a little, little young for the uh, the audience that they were going for. But
1: well, that makes sense. Yeah, all over you is the next song, mm-hmm. which is another raucous live tune. Not necessarily one of my favorites, though. Uh, This was the fourth and final single from this record. Mm -hmm. Rose pretty high on the charts. Topped out at number four on the modern rock chart. Charted on a couple other lists as well. Pretty straightforward rock song. Very much in the vein that we've been hearing up to this point. Yeah, The lyrics are a little repetitive. Every verse is exactly the same, which may have been by design. Um, I read a lot of reviews about this song that it's about a gay relationship or a relationship with a whore.
0: Yeah, I had read both of those as well.
1: I don't know where either one of those points of view come from.
0: Yeah, I didn't see anything explicit in here that I was like, oh yeah, that definitely is, oh yeah, but no, yeah, I didn't, I see, I that didn't see anything that specifically stood out to me. It's definitely about, I think it is about a sexual relationship for sure. Yes. But I don't think that it's about, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything explicit in here that makes me say, oh, that's definitely a... Uh, you know, a prostitute or definitely, you know, a gay relationship Yeah, I or both.
1: I had no idea. I'm like, I don't know.
0: This is a good time to plug. Uh, let us know what you think this song is about. <laughs>
1: oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. You can send your ideas about this song to info at audio judo.com. Yeah. Do you think this song is about a gay relationship or a relationship with a whore or both or both
0: a gigolo, if you will. It's yes,
1: just let us know and uh, we'll go. Mm. No. Okay. Um, he definitely has an infatuation with water that yeah, that really that just comes up in a lot of songs. Oh, it intensified over the years too. So two albums later, on the album called "The Distance to Hear, it's pretty much omnipresent. It's on like every every song.
0: Do you think maybe water represents like semen?
1: I don't know. Not to, maybe, not
0: to be crass, but
1: uh, could maybe he has to pee a lot?
0: Oh, that could be. He's like me. He has yeah, to pee a lot. I
1: bet you that's it.
0: <laughs> could, that could be.
1: I really don't know. I I think because he has. So much Eastern spirituality influences, like the elements are mm-hmm. very important in those kind of philosophies that I think it, I think it's just a recurring theme with him. So, uh, Shit Town. With an E. Towny. Now we are talking. Oh, yeah. Starts with the typical live beginning. Slow musical start, picks up, drives its way through. And of course, like you said, this is Shit Town with an E at the end of town because... It classes up the song.
0: Oh, it really does.
1: I mean, it makes it more sophisticated when you end an E to the end of things.
0: Ye oldie pub.
1: So they wrote this song about their hometown of York, Pennsylvania, which I guess the residents weren't too happy about.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. Although I actually think that it's kind of a a covert love song. What? To the town. You think? I think so. Because so when I I grew up in a pretty small town um, and for some reason, so many people that moved there. Um, a lot of people from California, uh, a lot of people from uh, larger places that moved there to get away from the problems in bigger towns called it a shit town. You know what I mean, and they would say, oh, this place is shitty. This is there's nothing to do here. There's nothing to do here. But then they would stay there for years, even after they had the opportunity to leave, even after they had the opportunity to move wherever the hell they wanted. They would stay there hmm. and just constantly talk about how it was shitty. Oh, there's nothing to do here. Oh, there's no. You know, there's no nightclubs. There's nothing to do. We can't go anywhere. We can't do anything. It's like, well, then move away. Well, we don't want to do that. It's nice here. <laughs> That's what I really feel. This song really? is. They're saying, look, this is a shitty town. There's, uh, what do they say? There's a crack dealer or crack uh, dealers down the street. Yeah, the
1: Weavers live up the street. The Crackheads live down the street. Yeah,
0: you know, and uh, our our house has all these weeds around it, so we can't see any of the neighbors. Yeah, but and they keep calling it a shit town. But they're not moving away.
1: Maybe because they can't.
0: It's a possibility that you might not be able to, you know, financially move away. But at the same time, if you're in a situation like that, make it better. You know, that's true. Cut the weeds down.
1: But when you're an, you know, angry 20 something year old, you just want to say, fuck it.
0: True. You just want to say, fuck it.
1: Yeah. So the band wouldn't play there for 10 years because they couldn't sell tickets for a long time. (laughs) People were pissed. Eventually they made amends to the city and the tickets went quickly. But I think all of us, pretty much all of us, not necessarily Kylie grew up in a small town, but a lot of us grew up in a suburban area, felt or feel like this about their cities. Like, this is a shit town. You know, I know I felt that way about Warren, Michigan, where I grew up. And the line, the hardline symmetry of people and pets. What a great line that is, though. It's yeah. such a great freaking line. And uh, I feel like it's an updated version of Subdivisions by Rush. Ooh. But now with added swearing. Ooh. And more crackheads.
0: There's a lot more crackheads in
1: this. <laughs> it's a good song, though.
0: No? It is. I like it.
1: But I, it, I feel like we've all like looked around our town and been like, "Well, <laughs> I'm a dump. Oh boy, like that guy won't. That guy's dogs won't start stop barking in my backyard for like four hours. What a shitty place to live. <laughs> I hate everything about this. Oh, it's all right. You know, why don't you move?
0: Oh, oh, it. yeah. Me. I mean, it's okay. It's, it's okay. nice. I like it. Nice most of the time. Ugh. TBD. Yeah. Does it, it stand for to be determined?
1: It does not.
0: Ooh, what does it stand for?
1: Tibetan Book of the Dead.
0: Ooh, much better.
1: So Ed is a very big fan of Aldous Huxley. He's the author of Brave New World, Doors of Perception. He's one of the biggest advocates for LSD and a regular user of the substance. According to Ed, this is one of the only songs that he likes to talk about. Oh, it is about, the song is about a rumor that he heard that while Aldous Huxley was on his deathbed, he was being fed LSD intravenously, and his wife was reading to him from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Whoa. Just kind of messed up. Yeah. But for Aldous Huxley, that's one hell of a trip. woo I tell you, you're going to be going with colors and all kinds of just. Fun nonsense, yeah. It's gonna be, it's gonna be pretty good. It's a familiar trip. It's, it's a super interesting concept, yeah. And it has one of my favorite grooves on the record too. The bass line in the beginning just rolls along.
0: It's it got, is, it is a very bass heavy song.
1: Uh, so good. I don't know where he comes up with these concepts. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever read The Doors of Perception. I have not. By so it's it's pretty messed up. Obviously, that's the book that the Doors based their name off of. Yeah, Doors of Perception. Stage is the next song. Mm-hmm.
0: It's a punk song in the middle of this album.
1: It is. It's, it's a straight-up punk song. A typical live intro, uh, and I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> um,
0: it's about the stage, Matthew.
1: Yeah, but I've read I read so much stuff that people are like, it's about Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, and I have a tough time getting my arms around that one. Yeah. I mean, just because of the rock and roll messiah line,
0: I think that's just coincidental, personally.
1: Right? Maybe in the line, maybe she was uh, she was good at childcare. Maybe is that sarcasm? Because most of us know she wasn't the best mother. Certainly not around that time. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, but I think it's more about a rock star who can't kind of leave the limelight. He's kind of addicted to it. But it's pretty ambiguous and not. It's not one of my favorite songs on the record, anyway. Yeah, it is a punk song, just yeah. right there in the middle. Waitress. This is a fun little song.
0: Yeah. It's about uh, shitty service, but you should tip her anyway. Right? Musically, it's super cool. Yeah. Got the interplay
1: between three musicians. So good. So good on this record. And the lyrics, well, there they are. If you go to sites, you know, lyric sites, people are arguing about what this song or that song means. And some Yahoo is at home going, well, I think it's a metaphor for uh, Christianity and how we are all good enough for some change. Not change as in money, but change as in when Christ enters your heart and your sins are forgiven. Oh. And I'm sitting there just going. (laughs) (laughs) It's about a waitress. So this is how this songwriting session played out in my head. Chad Taylor, the guitarist, says, you know, Ed, you just write songs about spirituality and water and shit. And it's all so deep. Ed says, yeah, so well, why don't you write about normal stuff? Like what? Hmm. How about our waitress at Denny's? Her right over there. I bet you can't write a song about her and make it good and use it on an album. Ed says, "Oh yeah," and boom, here it is. That's what I think. And if somebody out there proved me wrong, Cause please. This it's just it's so nonsensical lyrically for what everything else on the album is. Stop trying to dig too deep. I think it was just like, well. We should leave some fucking change for this waitress.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well we did get
1: our we did get our fries on time. Sure, she
0: got the food out quick. She so got the uh, f-
1: yeah, she got our fries and she did bring an extra ranch dressing, so we just leave her some change. She's a bitch, but it's alright. Just put it there.
0: Yeah, just leave it. Just That's leave, what that it, song just leave is. it on the table. It's, great. it's a great really little song. It
1: doesn't have to mean anything super super deep or clever. It's just a freaking song about a waitress.
0: Yeah. Grow up, people pillar of davidson Mm. Mm -hmm. i could not find anything about this song so i hope you've got some insight i love
1: this song so much when i've seen them live and yes when i've seen live live this has always been a highlight so the start is very similar as the other stuff picks up tempo the uh the way the music and the lyrics work together is so good so this is one of those lyrical moments that there are just different things to read. So I think there are a bunch of very obvious metaphors in the song to talking about the shepherd, right? A clear metaphor for Jesus, I would imagine. I wouldn't say that for any artist, but for Ed, most assuredly, that's mm-hmm. probably what it means. The song's title is another metaphor for Jesus, David's son. Ooh. But then really it isn't. Because hmm. outside of those two things, this song is about... Factory work, and Ed has said as much in a story. From the stage, he said this. So like I told you, we come from a small town where just about everybody there is doing something for the men. You know what I mean? Busting their ass nine to five trying to raise a family. We wrote this song as a work song for all the people we grew up with, all the people that are busting their ass for the man, that maybe they can sing this song and maybe feel a little bit less lonely. Hmm. So there you go. Maybe he lied. I don't know, but so much there's a lot of food for thought there. My favorite part of the song is towards the end, uh, where there's a counter voice in the background doing a completely different part. D-line-day. So the lyrics from that aren't gonna help any they're not gonna help clear anything up. Mm-mm. So those lyrics are here I am locking horns with the stallion, failing to hold my head up. I'll go back again, Pillar of Davidson, feeling to feeling too hard to go down, cheaper than all souls he will walk upon, deeper and deeper in love. So I hold my head up, cheaper than all souls he will walk upon, pillar of Davidson feeling too hard to go down. It doesn't help anything.
0: No, that uh, in fact probably opens more doors than it closes.
1: Again, like how do you make that about a work? Like I'm slaving over these uh, license plates in the factory and uh, <laughs> pillar of Davidson. I'm singing <laughs> along to this little ditty. Like hell no. <laughs> I don't know what I I I don't get it. It's a it's it's a strange number. Mm-hmm. I love that song, but it's a uh, it's not one I've been able to crack lyrically.
0: I'm glad that uh, it confounded you, too, because I, I like this song, but uh, in doing any research on it, I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know what the hell this is about.
1: Nobody really does. Good. Except for him. White Discussion.
0: White Discussion.
1: Such a terrific song, especially live.
0: It has oh. almost a funk beat oh, to it's it.
1: so good. Ed takes a uh, more political tone in the song than religious, and it just sounds to me like an argument. We all used to have at parties back in our early 20s. You got cornered by someone who's clearly on the opposite side as you, as you, and it's just back and forth. And at the end of the day, you're like, look, look where all this talking got us. <laughs> Nowhere. It's just circular arguments, stalemates. I can't tell you how many times this happened to me around that, that particular time. And probably just one more reason why this album resonates with me as much as it does. And the title, White Discussion... Clearly throwing this down like only white suburbanites have this kind of do nothing, go nowhere conversation. Yeah. Very pointed. And I love it. You got something <laughs> on your phone? There? I
0: do. Okay. So now take this with a grain of salt. This is a piece of trivia from Wikipedia. Just one grain of salt? Just a single grain of salt. Okay, we'll do. Um, this is a piece of trivia from uh, Wikipedia. But uh, it says, according to lead singer Ed Kowalczyk, uh, the song is about, quote, the end of the world, end quote. The discussion that takes place in white, comma, discussion is about people standing around talking about what needs to be done but taking no action. Too busy arguing amongst themselves, they ignore all the saints, prophets, and warriors and are oblivious to the real battle going on and by the time they notice, it's too late. The snippet of I warned you, I prepared you, I instructed you, I told you what to expect was recorded by the band while driving around in Denver before the release of Throwing Copper. According to Kowalski, the they heard this crazy guy on the radio talking about the end of the world and felt that it fit the song's theme so they recorded it and added it into the song right before the album was to be pressed.
1: Was oh, he talking about the very end? Yes. Where someone's yelling and that's yeah. actually uh, like from Thessalonians to biblical reference kind of yeah, perverted. It's not word for word. It's not King James version. Mm-hmm. But uh it's it's definitely
0: there. It would make sense that some uh, radio preacher would be screaming that over the radio. Heck and- yeah.
1: It's a great yeah. I didn't uh now again. I didn't read that. That's but that's good stuff.
0: Grain of salt because it is a Wikipedia thing, and there was not. There's a source, <gasps> but it's it's a dead end link. So I don't know how truthful that is. How lies. real that is? All it lies could, could be completely made up. But uh, I thought it was interesting enough that it, it stood out to me. So especially because so rarely on Wikipedia, under like a song or an album, is there a section called trivia. <laughs> so I was like, what the hell. Trivia. Trivia. Ed wore red
1: shoes when he recorded this song. <gasps> Get out. But only in the studio
0: where he would change before leaving.
1: Wow. That is good trivia. Oh,
0: pop-up video.
1: <laughs> and there is one final track. There is. It's a hidden track. Hidden track. Called The Horse. Which was not called Horse until like 2004. Originally, it was just Hidden Track.
0: Yeah. I assume on the original album, it didn't. It didn't have any listing or anything, It did not. On the original CD, I should say.
1: Correct. It just, uh, White Discussion was like nine minutes long. I'm like, ooh, that's a long one. And then then there was a bunch of silence. Six and a half minutes and then some silence and then hidden tracks.
0: So for those of you too young to remember this stuff, when uh, CDs started to come out, and obviously people had done hidden tracks before that as well, but uh, CDs were where they really took off because if the album ended... Before the uh, full length of the CD, which was what, 74 minutes or 80 minutes? I think
1: it was 74 to 79, maybe. Something that like or something
0: that. that? Uh, what they would frequently do is make the last track play, and then there'd be a bunch of silence in the middle, and then they would buffer a song right on the very end of the CD. So you would get done listening to a CD, and then you'd just be sitting there listening to silence for anywhere from 30 seconds to seven or eight minutes. And then all of a sudden, another track would start playing. Surprise. (laughs) It's hidden. It's hidden at the end of the album. I didn't know it was there. But uh, it became a pretty frequent thing. There are several albums that had a hidden track. And then once they switched to digital, obviously, they didn't want to do that anymore. So they would usually split it out and call it, you know, a track, you know, whatever number, and then hidden. You couldn't
1: hide it anymore.
0: Exactly. Which was unfortunate because I thought it was always cool. It's like a little uh,
1: surprise. It's like a, it's like a little toy in your box of cereal. Yeah. Like, Ooh, stamp. Yeah. Cool. How fun. But the last song is like a country Western song.
0: Yeah. It's very bizarre, but it's, it makes sense for a hidden track. But it's bizarre. Well, usually the hidden tracks on albums were like the, uh, the weird song, the one that they were just like, let's screw around in the studio for a little bit. And then they'd be like, Oh, you know what? This was pretty funny let's hide it on the end of the album.
1: You no, know we should do. We should get really really high. Ooh. And then record this song and then hide it at the last part of the record. I love it. People be like, "What are they really high?" And we're like,
0: yeah. "Yes, we are."
1: So, uh, so this is one of my favorite songs, favorite records of the 90s. This is still listen to it, The Regularity. It's one of my favorites. That is throwing copper by live.
0: I kind of feel like this is a an unknown sort of grunge era album. Like, I don't think that it's if you sold asked 8 anybody, records, Kyle. I know, but if you asked anybody today, like, name three grunge albums, nobody would say this.
1: Nevermind, 10.
0: Yep, yep.
1: And it's the Alice in Chains one. Oh. Was it Dirt or was that one of the songs? It could be Dirt. I don't remember off the top of my head. Sorry. I can't remember off the top of my head either. I think you might be right.
0: Music professionals.
1: I know, we're so good at this. <laughs> Come back and it would be re edited, so I can't remember the name of it. It's uh, it's dirt. Uh, (laughs) Ah, yes, uh, that is what I had said all along. But I love this record, you know. Uh, When I was looking back at our timelines and stuff, you know, we had like some albums from the 70s, some albums from the 2000s, a couple albums from the 80s, and we didn't, we did one record from the 90s that was a very first one we did, Toe the Wet Sprocket. And I'm like, wow, we're kind of neglecting the 90s. Can't do that. Yeah. If you have uh, some 90s records you like to hear, you should send it to us. Please. At info at audiojudo.com or any of our social media outlets.
0: Yeah. Facebook.com forward slash audiojudo. We're at audiojudo on Twitter, at audiojudo on Instagram. Email is going to be your best bet, though. That's the one that we always, it pops up immediately on our phone. And we both go, Ooh, Ooh,
1: stuff. But that's pretty much uh, pretty much what we have. We're going to keep cranking these out since we're quarantined via mm-hmm. coronavirus. So we're going to get as head as we can in case one of us is stricken ill. So we we have a, a trove,
0: a backup plan,
1: as it were. But thanks for listening out there. Hopefully everyone's doing well. Send us your feedback. Send us some ideas. Send us some I hate you uh, emojis. Whatever oh, that'd you know, be whatever. whatever whatever you want to send. We appreciate it. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, we will talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care out there.
0: I'm really sorry. I got to stop one more time. You got to pee again? I got to pee again. Holy I'm so you sorry. You got to pee too?
1: All right, let's all pee.